0: Spin Cycle, the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle. And no shame on anyone who queued up for Taylor Swift tickets. Oh, no. Tickets. No shame. Broadcasting from (laughs) the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land, I'm Jess Lily, and back in the studio with some goth nails.
1: Oh yeah, 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 <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a new abode is cracky reporter Charlie Lewis. G'day, Charlie. Hey, Jess. I was about to say g'day, cracky. <laughs> it's been a week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, no, it was. Um, it was quite nice. I mean, I, I took a bit of time off, a few days off work, and obviously wasn't on on the show last week to kind of you know do the moving and stuff and the DIY stuff. And there was there was a moment about. Three or four days into having not been, you know, basting my brain in the world of politics for a bit, where I just quickly looked at my phone, having been doing, I don't know, some painting or prying some staples out of a wall or something. And I was like, did you guys hear that there was a coup in Russia? And it was a very nice feeling to realize that I was like a day behind everyone on that. And it didn't really matter.
0: Um, It was very brief.
1: It was very brief. It was brief.
0: I was hoping to settle in for a weekend and (laughs) I was denied.
1: I'm I'm sure the the people of Ukraine uh, feel a great deal of sympathy for your lack of entertainment value from
0: this. (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, we are going to touch on that subject this evening, not on that subject, but um, we are going to talk to Deputy CEO of Dart Centre Asia-Pacific and clinical psychologist Kamina Lyle about the ethics of journalism in the age of trauma reporting uh and how news the news can so swiftly um turn trauma into entertainment into clicks yeah into clicks um of course it is you know legitimate reporting but there are lots of kind of ethical decisions that go along with that so really looking forward to chatting to Kamina about that soon. But first, it's it has been a week. There is the Russian mutiny that uh, you mentioned. I think we've settled on mutiny now because it wasn't quite a coup. And no. A lot of people are suggesting that um, Buddy, Buddy wanted to um, make Putin turn and go with him, which is an interesting point of view. <laughs> There's also been the imploding titan, which depending on who you talk to, we're not allowed to – joke about or, or we're like, obli- obli- or we're
1: obliged to yes. joke about it and I don't think I have to, to subscribe to either of you to be yeah. <laughs>
0: um, There's the return of uh, the Berejiklian. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, Taylor Swift saves the economy. That one I'm going <laughs> to leave well alone but um, let's spin the dice. Charlie, where would you like to begin?
1: Well yeah, I mean I think the, 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 uh, rep- as you say, it's been a hell of a week but I think the, the big story as regards to media and its influence and interactions with political figures is the, the the handing down of the decision from the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC, as, as sort mm. of it's colloquially known, uh, against former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian and her... I guess there's no other way to put it. Her secret ex-boyfriend, or boy, or ex-secret boyfriend. Not very. Yeah. Well, exactly. Ex-ex-secret boyfriend in every <laughs> single sense of how you might interpret that. Daryl McGuire was was the um, the former state member for Wagga Wagga, and uh, I think by the time that we found out that they had been seeing each other, it, it was already fine to affix the the word disgraced yeah. former MP to his title. He'd already had to. Um, had to quit based on a, a, a previous and different um ICAC investigation. Um I think there's a lot I mean there's there's in terms of what I guess this show deals with there's so much we could get into but the stuff that that uh really kind of came back to me when all these all all this stuff was being recapped in the media today including by me I, I suppose um <laughs> was the um the thing that politicians do and usually usually it's um Around the time of an election, you see, you know Josh Friedenberg with his with his beautiful family on their lawn, kind of oh, trying yes. to fight off the, the 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 challenge of a. My
0: husband is and, not a monster.
1: Well, that, that yes, and that was the next one I was going to say was that you get Kiralee Dutton, who can who can conjure up apparently nothing more like fulsome in terms of praise of her husband Peter than to say he's not a monster, <laughs> but the people who are telling him to go fuck himself on the internet, so those guys are the monsters.
0: Thank you, kiralee Kira- for giving us a. So- much mileage. An insight,
1: yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, it's, it's a real classic of the genre. That's like mm, 2019
0: now. 100%. Well, actually, I, I have to. A real classic of the genre. I know where you're <laughs> leading, and I'm going to lead the witness. Okay. My favourite, favourite was the AFR cover of. Um, oh, yeah, of yeah, a, yeah. Of La Berejiglian in a white suit l- looking louche as she owned. <laughs> The, what was it? New South Wales it Parliament. Was, it was like a... Uh,
1: the woman who saved Australia, I think, yeah, the, was, the, was the phrasing they used. The
0: woman who saved Australia and she was in um, New South Wales Parliament and looked the, the yeah, photo, yeah, yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it that was... Very was very
1: regal and very... And it came out... That, <laughs>
0: that was the weekend she quit, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> no, it was the weekend that... Um, the weekend that suddenly New South Wales, having been... Let's let's be honest here. Very lucky to avoid a lockdown for oh, many yes. many months. Mm. Had to go into quite a serious lockdown because ah, they mismanaged okay. the pandemic. All right. Um So it it was actually a couple of months before she was uh, yeah forced to to stand down. As, mm. as, it still was one of those things. I remember. Phil, I vaguely remember Phil Curry who wrote that piece and was like, "I didn't come up with that headline, you guys." Everyone was giving him shit on the internet. It's like that was that was a bit of hyperbole that the market that you know the sub editors came up with to make you guys click it. Uh, sure,
0: Phil. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sure. Whatever you say, Phil.
1: Uh. well no, no. I mean, the journalists don't decide their own headlines. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah. No. I mean, I think. But but as part of that, uh, uh, quite sort of, before all this had happened, I, I remember, it was that kind of um. There was this sort of merry-go-round of of, of what she disguised her relationship with Maguire as. She uh kind of. She was basically forced to compel, she was compelled to reveal to ICAC in a in the investigation to him that he they had been in a, a secret, I think, close personal relationship was the the way that she put it. Um and then they were like, Well, why didn't you tell anyone about it? And she was like, Well, it wasn't that it wasn't that serious, it wasn't that significant. Uh it wasn't of sufficient significance or or import to tell anyone about. Um And then well one, that must have like stung Maguire because he was telling ICAC around the same time that, you know, well, we loved each other and we <laughs> talked about having a child and we went on holiday together. I I had the keys to her house. Um and, 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 and then a week later when when that wasn't playing very well Bergerichlin was talking to Annette Sharp, who's the kind of gossip columnist at the Daily Telegraph, being like, "I loved him, and I'll never speak to him again. I've given up on love."
0: <laughs> That's right. Um, oh God. It and it so kind of kept
1: it kind of kept veering between the two mm. extremes. She couldn't quite decide. And and by the way, I, I think what I what I've really come to with all this is that whatever else you want to think about it, and obviously like she's a a very very senior politician who literally was like in the middle of a fight with her her. Incredibly shonky boyfriend who happens to be like an MP that reports to her. She's saying, "Yeah, sure, okay, I'll, I'll throw I'll throw money at your election." Now get off the damn phone. Yeah, I, think, I know. That's like, what like, I was
0: about to say. The same thing that sh- um, I remember those voice messages, and she yeah. just sounded so bored. Yeah, <laughs> by him and the world, just like oh, this is tedious.
1: And again, but it's like, and, and but like most of us have have had one or two relations in our past where we've had that phone conversation, <laughs> and we didn't offer them. Tens of millions of dollars to build a conservatorium in <laughs> yeah, Waggle. That's true. That's <laughs> like, true. Like, it's a thing where I genuinely do feel like actually, some just on a pure, sheer human level, quite a bit of sympathy for her because, you know, none of us want that stuff made public. It's it's intimate and uncomfortable. It's very much in the public interest that it. Yeah, becomes but politicians public.
0: aren't like us. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's the di- there's a yeah, huge yeah. difference. You know, they have a very very different sort of way of. Processing, processing the things. world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But today's uh result was not great for It
1: wasn't. It wasn't. She, she it was found uh that she and and Maguire had engaged in serious corrupt conduct uh by engaging in this undisclosed relationship and then that various decisions that she'd made uh while in office appeared on the face of it to have been influenced by her relationship with Maguire that she had not told anyone else about. She wasn't it wasn't rec- it wasn't um it wasn't recommended that she ha- face criminal charges. Other people were where it was recommended that they would face the charges she didn't have that, but it's still a mm. horrible block and and the funny thing was i mean the, I mean again, like for the longest time, New South Wales has always been the worst place for politics it's always been all the worst versions of like horrible corruption in, in every party has always been New South Wales for the longest time uh whatever you thought of her, uh, you know ideologically, there was a thing that she was a competent and she was the a competent premier and someone who hadn't been tainted with any clean. kind of scandal. She was clean first for a long time mm. in that state. So to have this kind of drag her down is, is I think you know on the face of it quite, quite sad.
0: I think it's interesting because um, so much kind of water has passed under under the bridge since um, since the scandal did fell her mm. po- political career. And you know whilst the the results coming out now are. Um, newsworthy I, I think a lot of people are probably <clears throat> feeling quite removed from it all but mm. i'm interested to know what you think what the knock on effect is for um the national or the the federal kind of integrity body that, yeah yeah the you know the,
1: knock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the, the national you... <laughs> anti corruption commission <Yeah>. oh interesting <laughs>
0: um because that was such a huge electoral promise, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and I, I, I don't know, you know, like with teeth. That's what I kept – yeah, an integrity that was the, body the, uh, with teeth, like the amount of the times headline. that was said mm, by mm. every single Labor politician. It didn't matter how much the uh, election went off the rails as 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 yeah, um, yeah, people yeah. tried to get um, – catch Albanese out – the federal uh the the integrity commission with teeth was the thing that kept everyone on the front on the front foot because it, it, it seems so necessary in the dying days of
1: of, of, the, of, the, Morrison of the Morrison government, Morrison government sure. yeah, but, yeah. but also he was, given yeah. what was
0: happening, you know, with the with the liberals in New South Wales. What does? It, but it's gone a little bit quiet on that front. Whether that's just media reporting, or or obviously it hasn't kicked in yet. What do you think the knock-on effect, though, is with a finding like this, which is yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Hasn't ste- it hasn't it um, hasn't wound back any anything. In fact, if anything, it's gone quite hard mm. to mm. have this um, finding. In New South Wales, when there are, you know, we've got um, noises about Stuart Robertson. Brother There's, Stewie, we yeah. did talk a lot about Warren Inch, good old Warren Inch yeah. last week. Well, I
1: think I believe Warren Inch has been <clears throat> referred to the Queensland State Commission. He has, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah.
0: Um, What do you think that the, the knock-on effects will have these findings yes. on on the federal? Um, well, it's, it's
1: it's really really tough because obviously, like a body of of any sort of that kind has to be un, unimpeachably insular if that makes sense they can't they cannot be influenced by media pressure or by the decisions of another commission that would be on the face of it a complete corruption of what they're supposed to be they have to be completely um but i but i but you I, think I know i know what you're getting at which is the idea that yeah. if if the first case that comes up that they 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 examine, they say, "Well,
0: well, Stuart Roberts got nothing nothing to answer, nothing to for. answer
1: for. It's gonna <laughs> it's gonna look. It's not gonna. It's, it won't be great for the government, and that yeah. that is the first thing that happens, of course. And and that's the thing is that obviously, the people who make up that the the National Anti Corruption Commission, which which opens its doors next week, so it's actually, I mean, that if we if you enjoyed anything that came out of of hearing." really painful phone conversations between Daryl Maguire and Gladys British Eklund, uh, strap in because we probably will be getting a lot more than that because all the part, both uh, the Greens, Liberals, Labour, they're all lining up to submit things to this. Amazing. This. It, it's going uh, to be a free-for-all. But just to quickly kind of cover off on that, ultimately they cannot be influenced by this stuff, but, you, but you're right, it will look pretty funny mm. if the first case they go, they go well, it doesn't meet the threshold, so it's not that big a deal. <laughs> Triple <laughs>
0: DART Centre Asia-Pacific Pacific is a project of the Columbia School of Journalism and represents a regional hub for media and trauma professionals and students who believe that effective reporting on trauma matters. Our guest this evening is their Deputy CEO, Kamina Lyle, a former jo- journalist. Kamina is a clinical psychologist who wrote a brilliant piece for The Guardian that was published a couple of weeks ago following uh, the Singleton Bush bus crash looking at the ethical decisions the media make when covering traumatic events and we thought it was very relevant to so much reporting right now so we're very grateful the stars have aligned for our call tonight welcome to triple r kamina hi jez um first can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do with dart center asia pacific
2: yeah, absolutely. So we're the only organisation which in, in the world really that's 100% dedicated to improving the quality of journalism through trauma literacy. Um, we are very, very um, convinced from our own experience and evidence that journalists that have some training in trauma literacy look after themselves better, look after colleagues better and importantly interview in a more sensitive and ethical way. But the the kind of bonus is they end up getting better stories through this work. It's not just about, oh, don't do that. Don't ask that question. Mm. Don't, you know, it's not about shaming journalists for what they do. It's about adding a perspective that most journalists never get to hear and certainly never get to see or learn in their journalism schools, or most likely from their editors, which is a whole lot of trauma science about what happens to people when they go through these really horrific events.
0: I have about a gazillion questions that I want to ask right now. I'm just like, ah, there's so much you could talk about. Mostly what we do, just quickly to answer your actual question, though, mostly what we do is training.
2: Okay, great. Um, we um, spend a lot of time in newsrooms working with journalists and, and hopefully imparting this knowledge.
0: I'm sure it's something as well that is it, it's such an ongoing issue. You must have to adapt your training really quickly because the lay of the land at the moment is, is so interesting in terms of... Um, you know social media reporting um versus kind of legacy reporting and who gets clicks and who gets first to the story and i 'm going to get to all of that, but you do open your guardian piece um, with your reaction to seeing photos in the media um, that uh, of um, victims in the that tragic singleton bus accident in New South Wales a couple of weeks ago, and there were photos that um, that victims had posted to their social media pa- pages which we often see uh, you know in, in these sorts of stories and they bring a human face, I suppose, to the tragedy. But you'd also shared another perspective on those photos, which really had me thinking as well about, "Wow, if I was in that position, can you talk us through that?"
2: Yeah, I think that um, you know, I've had lots of reaction to that piece, and some of it's been, "Wow, you know, they're public. People put them up on their profile mm. picture, and therefore they're public." Um, and the point I wasn't making, I was making, wasn't that. Um, there was anything kind of illegal about what was taken, you know, they could still argue that there might be a copyright question, but let's just leave that whole debate to the lawyers. I was arguing that the act of taking someone's photo without, I mean, obviously if, if they've passed, but without the permission of those closest to them is a further wound You're inflicting a further trauma on people who have already been traumatized because the definition of trauma, I mean, there's a thousand definitions of trauma, but the one thing they all have in common is powerlessness. If there's no powerlessness, there's no trauma. Trauma is something that happens to us that we have no control over whether that be a bus accident or a natural disaster or a sexual assault, whatever the kind of version of the trauma is, that fundamental underlying truth is part of it, which is I am not in control of my own destiny in this moment. And so when you do something like, you know, take someone's photograph, who's, you know, you'll imagine if it were you or me, you know, um, you know, and just blasted everywhere saying this is the person who died, you might actually be quite happy with that photograph. It's a beautiful photograph It you know, represents that person at their best, you know, playing sport or whatever it was they were doing. But you weren't asked. Mm. You weren't asked to say which photograph would you like um, to present of your um, loved one and and would you like one at all?
0: And also I guess the way... so the way that we edit our our photos for social media i mean we are very intentional um about what we share with who you know and and if it's something that you've shared the intention is to share it with your immediate family and community then it's such a it's it's being repurposed in such a completely different way
2: yeah exactly and it's just unfortunate because actually the other side of the story is that we do need to see or, we don't need, but we have a desire to see who are these people that this terrible thing happened to. You know, and the nuances of this particular story, where they were all friends, they were all coming home from you know a wedding, you know there was you know there was some commonalities that they seem to have with each other in terms of their age, their life experiences. And so we're curious. Mm. Now, why are we curious? This was kind of one of the other points I was making in the article. It's very easy to kind of go, well, look at those terrible journalists and look at that awful media and they're just trying to get clicks and they're just trying to sell. But the reality is, is that human beings, and in fact all animals, we are wired to get information about danger. Information about danger is absolutely the most important information it has the highest value to us more than information about you know someone who's gorgeous more than information about yummy food more than information about you know who's won the footy the most Uh, important information for any human being to ever receive is information about danger.
0: And there are other instances, there are other tragedies where you want people to be humanised, you don't want them to be a statistic, especially, I mean, I'm thinking about sort of gun violence in america or mm. that sort of thing where it's like we don't want don't humanize the perpetrator humanize the victim so By there is name, a yeah. yeah there's a fine line between you know what what do you share when and how and there's another interesting point that you make in that in your piece um, and I've spoken to, you know, uh, someone who did have to um, do some sort of preliminary report- reporting on this issue, and 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 you know, found it really on this event actually, the the Singleton bus mm-hmm. incident, and found it really challenging. And that is the trauma of of journalists as well being put mm-hmm. on that front line to have to then invade the spaces of these families when they're in deep grief. Um, can you talk to that a little bit as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, people people think of, you know, police, fire, AMBOS, SES, um, as being on that front line of those experiences. You know, I like the image of, you know, an event happens and, you know, people are running away from it. They're running away from the fire. They're running away from the bomb blast or whatever it might be. It's the journalists. The fire is the ambos, etc., that are running towards it. And in that um, context, people almost never think of the journalists as being exposed to trauma. And there's a few reasons for that one is that generally the community don't like journalists. You know, that's been my experience all my life as a, as a working journalist, and it's a very common thing. They're intrigued, but actually, you know, hate the it's media, suspicious. even though they consume it. Mm. Um, But the other reason is that we're kind of invisible, you know, like we're behind the camera filming the (laughs) fires, And so it's not so obvious that, you know, people... It's not so obvious that the journalists are there. But every single journalist, particularly if they stay a long time in the career, 100% of journalists have been exposed to trauma through their work. Um, some many 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 multiple times multiple traumas daily exposure if you you know just are unlucky enough to be on a beat um, sometimes that trauma is incredibly close to home you know mm-hmm. it's a story about a child that's the same age as yours or it's a sexual assault and you've had sexual assault experiences in your in your history or it's you know, your community. It's it's your friends. And this is particularly the case for rural and regional reporters. They go to car accidents, bus accidents, and it's their friends um, or people that they know in the community. So, And journalists themselves are almost never aware that this is a trauma experience. And part of that is like, well, I've signed up for this gig. You mm-hmm. know, I've chosen this job. But... Part of it is also that their employers, the the kind of industry or the community of journalists, up until very recently, haven't haven't even occurred to them. And you know, I personally know of dozens. I mean, I left journalism because of, of trauma exposure, and I know dozens. I was speaking to someone just today um, who. You know, was reporting on the royal commission in child sexual abuse and mm, just said one day, I can't, I can't hear these stories anymore. Mm. Um, and so there's a, there's a, um, a loss, a loss of knowledge, a loss of skill, a loss of you know. We think this is a free speech issue. We haven't even got to you know trolling and doxing. But we <laughs> think if we can't keep our best quality journalists in, in the industry. Working to expose, you know, do the best thing that journalists do, which is shine a light on truth and expose corruption and, you know, create things like sexual, um, uh, royal commissions into childhood sexual abuse. That came from journalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would never have existed. That would never have happened if it wasn't for journalism. I suppose... Um, Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I can talk and talk and talk. Interrupt
1: me whenever you want. Um, It's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, Kamina, um, again, thank you so much for being on the show and and thank you for the piece. It was really very important and moving. I think one one of the intersections, I suppose, of of the two issues that we've been talking about tonight is... um, I suppose, yes, yeah, the trauma that's inflicted often on quite young, inexperienced journalists who are sent off to do some of the the, the, the rougher end of some of this reporting, uh, whether it's engaging with people who are grieving or, or, you know, as you say, running towards the fire when other people are running away from it. Um, do you have any thoughts on what is a what kind of practical uh, strategies are available to a young journalist if they want to push back, if they feel that they're being... Asked to do work that might contribute to that kind of moral injury that you're talking about.
2: Mm, yeah, great question. I think some of the there's a couple of reasons why young journalists are, are given that exposure. One of them is the older ones have done enough; you know, <laughs> they <laughs> yeah, know what yeah. they're in for, and they're, they're the you know chiefs of staff or the editors that can now have some control. Um, and the other one is it's kind of historically been a little bit of let's you know throw you in the deep end, let's mm-hmm. see if you're cut out for this gig. Um, and I know for myself, you know, one of my first stories was the Port Arthur massacre. And at the end oh, of the week, wow. I was in floods of tears. And my editor sort of took me out for a drink and then said, you know, you know, you, you know, you know, you chose this this career, don't you? Mm. And that was his kind of pep talk. <laughs> you know, it was kind <laughs> of oh, <wow>. hard enough. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um Yeah, I think that what's happened, like I was in a newsroom recently um, doing some training and I kind of made this point about the young journalists and they said, no, we're protected. These guys, you know, our senior colleagues do the opposite now. They protect us from this kind of exposure. And I was like, hallelujah, you know, (laughs) finally our kind of message. I mean, we've been doing this work now for 20 years, kind of plugging away, plugging away, plugging away, and finally it's starting to come through um in some organisations. so i think I think it's not on the journalist, it's got to be on the community of journalists, it's got to be mm. on the newsroom, it's got to be on the, the leadership, it's got to be on the mm. leadership yeah and and really understanding that you know you 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 will lose them, you'll lose good journalists, but also you're missing good stories, mm. you know the ability to kind of go in deep in a trauma sensitive way with a community, with a, you know, someone who's had a traumatic experience and tell that story in ways that are not about the cliches and not about the archetypes, um, you know, the archetypal victim, the archetypal villain, to just get into the kind of broader context of who this person is and what happened to them and empower them to say what happened to them you know, my favourite question, and this is one that I train on, is when you are going to, to sit with someone who to interview them, ask one question and one question only, which is, what would you like to tell me?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that immediately empowers the person. Any question at all, that puts the power back on them. Would you like it if we published a photograph? Which photograph would you like us to publish? And, you know, making that consent to the interview continuous. It's not just about, here I am, I'm a journalist, can I ask you some questions? Yeah, okay, bang. And from then on, bad luck, what happens from that Mm -hmm. moment? It's checking in. Is it okay for us to be talking about this? Is there anything you want to ask me about the process of producing this story? All of those things are incredibly skilled. They're, they're, They're skills that you can learn, but the impact of them... That the person says something you're not expecting, Mm -hmm. you know, they they open up in a way that you're whole. I never thought of that. And then if you do this all the way through and you kind of check back in with them, you know, notice you told that to me. How are you feeling? If I write about that, often you'll get even more. Oh yeah, but you know, I forgot to tell you this bit. Um, It really is quite profound when you empower someone who has lost power over their story to
0: regain power uh, over their story. Kamina, I absolutely love this visionary utopia. (laughs) But, I mean, I think (laughs) the cynic in me, though, is sort of... I guess I I, I love the idea that that um, is happening more. And, I don't know, maybe I'm too much on the combative end of sort of social media Mm -hmm. where... um, you know, where where there is sort of reporter, r- r- news organisations pitched against news organisations and, and trying to sort of outdo each other <laughs> with undermining mm. perhaps sometimes um, narratives around certain victims. I mean, there is one, mm-hmm. one I want to mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. address, which is um, mm-hmm. recently the Canberra Rape Crisis Centre put mm-hmm. out an open letter saying that in the past media would contact them to double-check... Um, how they could make their, make sure that their reporting wasn't triggering and was sensitive to to people who might have been traumatized by that by these subjects that they were discussing, whereas um, recently that they were be, they were being contacted inundated um, by media to confirm claims relating to experiences mm. shared by Brittany Higgins in a way that seemed intended to foster victim blaming and the fact that they had felt mm. compelled to put out this open letter to media saying, stop contacting us, we are not here to um, to reinforce your narrative. What, how, what does that make you think in terms of where we're at, the landscape at the moment, um, the media landscape at the moment, this quite sort of ideologically mm. polarised media landscape where they might mm. be using people's trauma to to reinforce an ideology
2: yeah yeah oh where do i begin there there are some news organizations who have not engaged with that um globally not just in australia um and there are many who have um i'll leave you to kind of
1: deduce Right. Is who is uh, who in that particular? Yeah. Oh, my little pals, <laughs> Tell me I don't
0: know who you're talking about. I think regular <laughs> listeners of
1: the show will know, will know what you're getting <laughs> you at. There. Think Come
2: about here. this. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, part of this, and this is also my point, you know, we have to take responsibility for where we are as a society. Partly it's that thing I was talking about, that innate, you know, desire to learn more and more and more about danger that we all have. But part of it is, you know, one thing that I always get frustrated at with at um, at parties is, you know, dinner parties and things, when people say, "Oh, yeah, but the media only do that to, you know, sell or get clicks or whatever." Mm. And, well, who's clicking? Yeah, who's buying? Yeah, you know, like at the end of the day, don't you know, like yes, absolutely, there's responsibility there, but this is a societal issue, and when we're talking about Oh, my God, when we're talking about misogyny, when we're talking about you know um, you know way you know other contexts in you know, a racism, and you know all of that part of this story, it's part of what's going on here, and if we're not able to broaden our lens to see that, um I don't know, you know there's not much hope for us. So I don't think it's the the media are absolutely part of it, but they're not the sole, um, yeah, the that's sole fascinating. driver mm. of this
1: community do you yeah. think um and I, and I know that there's uh, there's always the the reluctance and i i share it as as a journalist there's always the reluctance to kind of reach for things like regulation because obviously that can be very positive but mm. can also be used to, to kind of stymie useful debate but do you think in terms of sort of trauma-informed reporting and and issues like you've spoken about do you think that the current guidelines for example say the the meaa uh, code of ethics uh mm. do you think those are currently sufficient to deal with the the challenges, I suppose, of, of of the modern reporting world.
2: Yeah, look, I have to embarrassingly say I don't remember the MEAA code of <laughs> ethics. Um, well, that's something it's in itself, isn't it? Not something I wake up <laughs> reciting. Um, <laughs> but I'm also not a journalist anymore. I mean, I'm pretty sure there was there is something in there about you know invasions sort of privacy and um, and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't know how. I mean, yeah, if there was a way to regulate it, great, let's go for it. But I think it's more about skills, mm. and it's more about ignorance. Um, in that, you know, that kind of gotcha journalism—first on the scene, first with the photo, first with the grab, whatever the grab is—and then see you later. I don't need you anymore. You know that that kind of journalism has actually been around forever as long as yeah, journalists
1: yeah, have existed.
2: Exactly. Um, and probably will always be. So, you know, I guess at Dart we're kind of focused on let's bring something else to the table, let's broaden the picture, let's, you know, rebalance somehow so that, yes, those moments will occur and they'll be terrible for everyone involved, but at least there's a broader conversation within, you know, the journalism community, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it in universities, we're seeing it... You know, with the journalists themselves wanting, you know, wanting to be better, wanting to, you know, look after themselves and others. So, I don't know that we're ever going to eradicate that real, you know, urge and I've got to get this no matter what. Mm. Um, but I think we can add to it. We can, you know, we can add different perspectives, and hopefully that will you there's know,
0: there's something make else some
2: difference in the world.
0: <laughs> there's something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, And, you know, I know we're slightly straying off topic, but this is so fascinating and I'm like, oh, I want to ask about this and this and this. So just this weekend, um, obviously the the world was glued to the demise Mm -hmm. of a submersible um, that visited the Titanic site and it was called the Titan Mm -hmm. and obviously we all know what happened. That it was interesting, though, in terms of the way people responded. So a lot of people, there was a lot of kind of dark humor around billionaires, and I don't need to care about them. And then a lot mm-hmm. of sort of policing of that humor, and and again the moral injury of like these are still people. And what do, what are your thoughts about um, about situations like that? Because that was an ongoing situation. No one knew what had happened. In theory, they might have still been alive, and there was x amount of hours of oxygen, and there was this almost divide between. People who felt, you know, morally it doesn't matter what this situation is, you must respect this, the, the, the tragedy that these humans find themselves in and others who are like, well, no, there's context and, and we can perhaps joke about it in, in this instance. You know, what are your thoughts on news stories like that where, where there is some sort of light and shade, a little bit of ambi- yeah. b- ambiguity and <laughs> dark humour? There's always light and shade. I mean, yes, I mean, I have to confess I just found
2: that story absolutely, you know, um, magnetic. You know, I, yeah. I was refreshing. I was, especially as the, you know, the last few hours of theoretical oxygen. Um, you know, it, it's very hard to suppress that curiosity that mm. we all have. And then you think about, you know, the Thai um, cave, you yeah, yeah, yeah. even if you're old enough to remember the Beaconsfield mining um, mm. accident, and you know, Stuart Diver in the Threadbow, um, oh, uh, yes, avalanche, or whatever it was. Mm. Um, you know, every now and again, there's those moments of, you know, oh, you know, in all this bad news, there's good news, someone survived. And the so, I think that was story. part of the the curiosity, the intensity of that story was what if they were found? What they find them, yeah. a needle in a haystack? Um, there's also the MH. Four seventy, I can't oh, remember, that, this, you know, the place yeah, that disappeared. Yeah. These are things that just intrigue us, you know. What if it were you know, and it's that thing as you can really, I mean, I don't think it would ever have been me in that subversible going to the Titanic. But, you know, that sense of, like, you know, someone's missing and we want to find them. So that's at the level of, you know, the intrigue in the news story. And I think when something becomes so universal like that, you mm. um, everyone's experiencing it at some level. Then, you know, the hunger for, you know, commentary and discussion and, you know, it just goes off. And again, we come back to we live in this diverse society with a whole bunch of different diverse perspectives and they're going to come out, you know, there's not going to be one narrative. There's going to be, you know, hundreds. So, I mean, I'm loving the fact that at least in that instance, there was some discussion about, hang on, is it too soon to, you know, make that joke? (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I don't think you can, we can't really completely eradicate human nature here and that's, that's where you know we are working in the grey, and that you you mentioned you mentioned that column I wrote for the Guardian. Like I felt like I was walking a tightrope when I was writing that, not blaming the journalist, not hurting the family anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, self, telling my message of you know there's science here that's happening behind this, and mm-hmm. that there's a community of people that are. You know, alcoholics and, you know, high, high rates of suicide in journalism. You know, these mm. are things that are hidden, this hidden cost of being on the front line, of telling the stories that we all want to hear and then we don't want to admit that we want to hear them.
0: I think we that's why the article is so brilliant and I it stayed with me long after I read it because it does... There's no blame. It just sort of contemplates yeah. all the different perspectives. And, and
1: indeed, you talk about your own experience of having to do things that that maybe were important <laughs> for. My partner for journalism. They're
0: going to ask you what's the word for you? <laughs> no, I, no. I was going to ask you because you did mention. I, I love the fact that you were quite open about. You're quite when candid you, about. Yeah, that. candid. When when you were a journalist, you also did things that you know, like um, trying to. Um, kind of um, talk your way into a funeral and, and things like that. You were open about that as a journalist. I'm interested to know, with your perspective now and the work that you do now, how would you have done if you were in a young journalist in that same situation, trying to talk your way into that funeral or or trying to report on that story, what would you do differently now?
2: Oh, look, I don't want to kind of, you know... Um reflect just in you know, a kind of you know positive way on myself, but I did take no as an answer then mm. and I do think that you know there is there is even though I didn't have any you know trauma training like I did I gave it a crack you know <laughs> <laughs> realizing that it was unlikely um it was in the it was in the kind of um, aftermath of the Bali bombing um, and you know I gave it a crack I've, there are other things that I've done that I feel like did infringe my moral code.
0: Um, what and are they, Camina? Have... Now's the time to fess up. <laughs> yes, I shouldn't have hinted that my this <laughs>
1: was done. Jess, you have to oh, take oh, no look, for an answer. If...
2: <laughs> <laughs> he was a public figure. He was a very prominent <laughs> public figure. Um, but I did crack the password of someone's email account once.
1: Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> oh, fair play. That's just... That's
2: just... And the kind of, you know, devastating bit of the story, I, was, I did it with a colleague and we both kind of went, shall we do this? And so we kind of looked at each other. We knew it was kind of really, really on the edge. <laughs> Um, And we both said yes, and we did it, and that person is still a journalist, and I'm not, but not because of that. Um, And the really disappointing thing was there was nothing interesting in it. It was like we were looking for a particular um, piece of information. And as we were sort of having this conversation with ourselves about would we do it... I remember we said, well, even if we get this thing that we knew what we were looking for, we wouldn't really be able to
0: use it because we'd have to kind of, you know, even get... tell our editors yeah, yeah. how we got it. So I don't know. Ask Rebecca of Brooks think... about that. There are ways to get <laughs> it. Um, Piers Morgan, we they all know. That there wasn't they know how to get anything that. in there. And we could
2: just kind of close the lid on it and pretend we hadn't done it. Um yeah, so that's probably the thing that I look back on. And go like, oh my God, really?
0: <laughs> we'll let we'll let you get back to your evening. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been a fascinating. Look into um yeah it's been great and I and I hope you write more because I love that piece in the in the Guardian oh, thank I think you. I think it's something that we constantly need to contemplate more of um as our as the as media becomes more fractured and journalism becomes you know probably more fractured a little bit more combative mm-hmm. and and kind of looking for an audience um so thank you yeah, so much
2: absolutely. all right wonderful <laughs> thanks so much for having me really appreciate it thanks, even
0: me. the tough questions. <laughs>
1: Triple R. Jess, you were—we were talking about about been... how
0: I how I um really want uh, Kamina to be my psychologist. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was really great. God. She was um a really. S- thoughtful yeah. I mean, again, I think we we were talking like, about. Can how... you
0: explain my trauma, Camilla? Comm- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I of you've I explained d- that trauma so well. I want you to explain. I did actually find clear. myself while I'm in fit curled in a fetal position yeah, yeah, under yeah. a rug patting your dog.
1: I did find myself wanting to talk to her about things I'd done that I felt a bit un- uncomfortable about. <laughs>
0: you should have, Charlie.
1: Well, that was the opportunity. I, I know.
0: she was so gentle. The time. Rate is probably quite high. <laughs> that was the chance you had.
1: So what's going on in the world of influencers? (laughs) To quickly to shift gear slightly.
0: Um, Oh shit! I've got to get that piece up. I've completely lost it. Um, Okay, so what you're talking about is uh, our friends at Shine. I don't know. Is that how you pronounce it?
1: That's how I've always thought it was pronounced, but um, but I'm not sure. I think it's Shine. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. So um, I have never bought anything from Shine. I've Mm. sort of they've been on my peripheral. They're like, a, they're, like a, they're
1: like a fast fashion fast kind fashion
0: of Fast fashion website, retailer. Yeah. retailer. Um, it's, it's just never crossed my path. I'm probably too old. I don't know. Uh, anyway, there has been a long time discussion about um, Shine's problemat- problematic environmental and labour practices, um, you know, un- mm. just all the stuff. All, that all the things that, that we all associate fashion. with fast
1: fashion. 100%. they they've They've been accused of. Yes, yeah,
0: so underpaying, overworking warehouse staff, stealing designs is another one. Of, oh yeah, plagiarism was a big thing with yeah, them, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, of independent designers. Um alleged
1: plagiarism, I should say.
0: <laughs> selling really a really really high number of garments for uh extremely low prices, so that, you know, fast fashion quandary, like the materials mm-hmm. that you're using, all that sort of stuff. So, um, it has, whilst for a long time they managed to stay above the curve, in, ahead of the curve in terms of their, um, just the fact that they were, you know, able to pump out stuff that's on trend really cheaply. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's made, oh, That reputational damage has made a dent. And I imagine, you know, given the margins and given the volume, that they needed to do something about it, right? Yeah. So rather than... <laughs> Rather than fix their practices, they, in the last few weeks, invited a bunch of influencers on a brand trip to China to report on how great the conditions are instead of... Oh, well, that is reassuring. (laughs) Instead of, you know... um, Actually, reforming
1: their their, their <laughs> like labor practices or something.
0: Yeah. So, um, a bunch of these influencers um, toured one of the factories in Gangzhou and documented their experience on their social media, but it was called the Innovation Factory, um, and alarm bells are immediately <laughs> <remain>. <laughs> As a lot of people pointed out, um, there were no nothing was on. No machinery was on. Obviously, hmm. um, the influencers gave them an A one vote of, um, you know, confidence. Confidence, uh, uh, yeah. carry yeah. on. It all looks fantastic, beautiful, shiny, great people. I
1: really everyone's like happy. The, I quickly looked it up while we were talking about it, and and the the, the quote that really got to me was uh, an influencer called Danny Carbonari.
0: Oh yeah, she's come under some some <laughs> some scrutiny. And their
1: quote with was her, with her in-depth investigative reporting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they're like their in- endorsement was they've definitely not underpaid me <laughs> which I'm sure is true <laughs> and that's all for this week thanks for listening you can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform
0: and you can follow us on Twitter at Naj at Lily Juice
1: and at The Shuffle Diary
0: you can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.